used to slip down to the beach and hold my head under the water just long enough to decide to come back up again. It seemed so ironical to feel like that just when I was made a star. Clara Bow. Chapter 26 In some, California can induce a state of euphoria and spawn some very big cats. On the lamb from the moneyed interest back in New York, a young actor turned director named Cecil B. DeMille landed in the Golden State with a couple of friends. They rented a barn and put on a show, The Squaw Man. The year was 1914, and the show was the first movie shot in Hollywood. DeMille not only reveled in the Hollywood lifestyle, he also, in a large part, created it. At the time, Hollywood was a small town of unpaved roads surrounded by orange groves and scrubby hills. Cecil B. wore jodhpurs, knee-high boots, and a sidearm to protect him from rattlesnakes and the enforcers of Edison's East Coast Film Trust. The trust was a syndicate that levied a fee for every foot of film shot in exchange for distribution. Happily, Hollywood was far, far away from the demanding establishment of the East, and an industry, wild, fantastical, and freewheeling, took off. Note, I would like to thank the historian Kevin Starr for the above information that I have clumsily paraphrased from his brilliant books on Americans and the California Dream. I think the part about Cecil B. must have been mm, probably the second volume of the work, titled Inventing the Dream. I recommend the entire series. Okay, back to our story. A few years later in 1919, Harry Houdini came out to Hollywood to make a movie called The Grim Game. He and his wife rented a cottage across the street from a good friend who owned a very big piece of Laurel Canyon. During his eight-month stay here, he swam in his friend's pool, kept up a torrid, really torrid, correspondence with Charmian London, Jack London's widow, and performed stunts while hanging hundreds of feet in the air, suspended from a biplane. In one of these, an unscripted mid-air collision took place. Unscripted? I'll explain. It was an accident caught on film in which no one was killed or injured. Because the footage was so exciting and oh too real, the producers lied, said it was choreographed, and used it as a selling point to promote the movie. Houdini remembered this time as one of the happiest of his life. The sunshine here can do that to you. Unfortunately for Antoine, the sunshine now can be obscured by smog. What was wild has become tame. And to spur his creative process on our fourth film together, Antoine decided to stop taking the meds he had been prescribed the previous year. I won't get into the psychiatric diagnosis that caused my friend to spend 12 months on medication. I will take the liberty of telling you what Antoine told me one traumatic weekend. Since he was a teenager, he always had to be in motion or he would fall into a dark place, self-wounding, endlessly sad, and inescapable. Physical activity was best to keep him from plummeting or an extreme mental challenge. The pills he took that year kept him level. However, there were times they also made him feel drained and dull-witted. He felt the movie we were making was mental challenge enough. Therefore, he kept fiddling with the dosage, and as filming advanced, 
through the first few weeks, he hopped online instead of consulting his physician and tried to wean himself off the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor in a very big hurry, as he was so very busy. There's been a lot written recently about the pitfalls, mysteries, and the effects of long-term use of antidepressants. What everybody agreed on, or standard practice, was that coming off the medication usually could be done safely in two weeks. However, things are not always standard when it comes to the convolutions of the brain. And in some instances, discontinuation can take up to a year or more. On a chilly, unusually clouded over February afternoon in 2009 when I was 48, after the fourth week of shooting on the revived franchise, I received a call. It was Antoine. He told me he couldn't make it to set on Monday. One could say that was unusual to the nth degree. Directors never miss work unless they're stricken, for example, by a heart attack or family tragedy. I asked Antoine what the matter was. He was politely evasive and almost robotic. Further, he was tampering with film protocol making his first call to me, a studio head, instead of his producer who would, in the normal course of events, alert the studio and arrange either a temporary work stoppage or a fill-in. However, we were on the phone. I was his friend. There was something so alarming about the intonation of his voice and the nature of the call that it was as if I heard in my ears a cloud of invisible bees miles away, swarming, buzzing, dangerous, and on their way to sting. I asked him to sit tight and promised I would be at his house in 10 minutes. Oh, he said, and added he'd leave the door to the kitchen open. I don't know why I didn't send an ambulance. All I can say is I wasn't thinking clearly. No, perhaps what I was afraid of was being called out or making a scene, a big drama when it wasn't called for. Strange, considering my line of work. There have been a few times in my life when I have felt the presence of death. The night Dave's agent returned my call, sitting next to Darla's bedside, and when I walked into Antoine's kitchen to see his carefully arranged knives off their magnetic strips and scattered across the counter. I found Antoine lying on the couch in his living room. His eyes were closed and ringed with shadows. His skin was a funny color. His shirt sleeves were rolled up. One arm was upturned beside his body. The other crossed over his abdomen. The white cloth of his shirt below his arm, over his midsection, was smeared lightly with blood. His upturned arm was tracked with neatly spaced cuts oozing bright red. There was a small, sharp kitchen knife on the coffee table along with a pen and a blank piece of paper. He was breathing. I could see that. I called his name. He opened his eyes and sat up. I was thinking all weekend about killing myself, he said. But I didn't want people to find a mess, so I thought I'd better call you instead. Do you want me to take you to the hospital? He looked surprised. The cuts, they're nothing. I, I wanted to see how deep before I could feel them. They gave me a rush, just like they did when I was a teenager. That's why I called. I sat down on the floor next to the couch, and then I fell asleep before I could clean up. The real cut would have been to my femoral artery. I, I couldn't do that to you. 
Are you still thinking about killing yourself? Antoine looked into the distance, as if to locate a sound or a voice. Although, I don't even think even then I would have felt it. And then at me. No, not right now. If I could have sent out a taproot from the base of my spine to the floor, I would have. I wanted to be part of something solid, durable, and still, like a 90-year-old house sited on granite. Instead, I reached for his arm. I think we should go to the hospital. Billy, they're just scratches. I don't mean the cutting. I mean, he withdrew his wrist from my hand. I'm just so tired. Maybe I'll sleep. He lay back on the couch and turned away from me. What would Catherine Hepburn do? I hadn't a clue. And since she died in 2003, there was no way I could ask her. I got up off the floor, took off my coat, and put it over his back. Are you asleep? Antoine twisted over, and my coat clutched under his chin. He asked, Can you stay here? That I can do. I spent the rest of the afternoon there and the night. I made phone calls to do with his film. I contacted Cooper and asked if he'd step in and cover for a sick friend if I needed him. I told Mr. Booker, although he was married by that point and living with his spouse, where I was. I called Jake in his first year of a postgraduate neurology fellowship at Mass General Hospital and asked him what if a friend who insisted on remaining anonymous and was suicidal was refusing to go to the ER. When Jake advised, I followed his instructions. Antoine and I talked. He acquiesced to eating toast. He docilely accepted every time I handed him a cup of tea, water, or juice, and drank them down. At a very late hour in the evening, we stood in his bathroom, emptied the contents of three pill bottles into the toilet, and flushed them. I kept an eye on him sleeping and waking, and Monday morning, I drove him to his doctor's office. When he was finished seeing the doctor, I took him home. Antoine, far from the subdued mood he'd been in in hours previous, was angry. Isn't it weird how we bullshit each other? We bullshit each other? Not you. This. He dropped a folded pack of pills on the butcher block in the kitchen and swatted it over with his fingertips. He wants me back on these and gave me a referral to a cognitive behavioral therapist. Well, what a... What part of that is bullshit? I reached to pick up a cardboard and foil package. It was a two-week course of pills in descending doses. The part in your hand. He was avoiding my gaze. God, I hate you to see me like this. I don't mind. You must not mind, really, or you wouldn't have called me. Can I have the therapist's number? He waved the suggestion away. You don't want to sit on hold, I insisted. I'll do it. I made the appointment, stressing the phrase, suicidal ideation for the following afternoon, which left me with another evening with a director emotionally and physically incapacitated who wasn't keen on taking any form of prescribed medication. He said, me on medication isn't me. Antoine, while looking better than he had the previous day, still had dark circles resembling bruises pooling beneath his eyes. I've known you a long time now, have you ever been on this kind of medication before? It changes over the years. I took lithium when I was a teenager. For depression? 
The diagnosis, like the medication, also changes. Have you thought about killing yourself before? I mean before this weekend. There was something like a smile attempting to lift the lower portion of his face, but his eyes weren't having it. Yeah, pretty much every December through February since I was 14. I felt like I had caught a two-by-four in the abdomen. Billy, I'm 44. Have you been on psychiatric drugs since you were 14? Not consistently. I hate them. How about psychiatric care? Same. Not consistently. And what do you think would be best for you now? To take the rest of the week off and then go back to work. This wasn't the response I was expecting. I was confused and starting to think out loud. Well, wait, what, what are we going to put... What are we going to put down on the production report? A production report is the official log of each day of filming, every action, every event, every dime spent. The production report is filed with the studio and serves as a definitive legal record. Just for clarity's sake, I'll repeat what I asked. What are we going to put on the production report? That I had an emergency appendectomy. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the story, please tell a friend.